Hi friends, welcome to the Ian Khan Show. My guest today is Parag Khanna. Parag was named one of Esquire's 75 most influential people of the 21st century. He's been featured across publications. He's a, a young global leader of the World Economic Forum, multiple time author and TED speaker. Welcome Parag Khanna. Parag, welcome to the Ian Khan Show and welcome to the Aftershock episodes. Now, Aftershock came out recently. This is the world's top 50 futurists who are talking about tomorrow, different angles, different perspectives. Your piece here is really great as well. And you have such an amazing background uh, in uh, geopolitical science, futurism. You've been, you've done, you have such an amazing resume and, and a bio. It's, it's really difficult for me to talk about all of these things. Tell me about your career path. Where did you come from and how did you get here? Well, there's, uh, I guess we'll have to do the short version of the story, but uh, I was born in India, but at the time my parents were already living in East Africa, uh, where my brother had already been born in Sudan, my older brother. So I spent my childhood actually uh, in Abu Dhabi uh, in between, and then we moved when I was relatively young to New York. Uh, so I had kind of my adolescence largely there, but also in Germany, where I finished high school in a German school. Um, but I went to university in the U.S. and, you know, split, uh, also went, did another year in Germany again, um, and, you know, graduate school between the U.S. and the U.K., um, and I've been, uh, you know, in various think tanks like the Council on Foreign Relations and Brookings, the World Economic Forum in Geneva, um, worked in the United States military, uh, deployed in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan as an advisor to special operations forces, um, you know, did uh, my um, sort of, you know, published my first book on geopolitics uh, prior to my military service, and then after which did my, turn my PhD, which was more on diplomacy, uh, into my second book, um, and uh, and then you know continue to work at this intersection of geopolitics and globalization. So I don't think that I set out in any way to do conscious future forecasting. It's just simply more interesting than you know uh, regurgitating the past or splitting hairs about particular you know historical episodes or, or counterfactuals. So I've certainly been you know drawn to it. And, uh, you know, as I say in the piece, um, you know, it's, you know, the, the Toffler influence was actually very, very strong uh, in our household because of just my dad's collection of Toffler books. And, uh, you know, so the chance to have met uh, Alvin and Heidi several times, you know, in Los Angeles and spend quality time with them, uh, you know, comes after having already been massively inspired by them and, and written about them. So it's almost just a coincidence to have also been personally touched uh, you know, by, by those experiences. So it was an honor to be included in this uh, volume to reflect on that. That's incredible. And, and I really believe that, you know, whatever work Toffler did, uh, and it's been 50 years, it's been 50 years, many of the people, a lot of the people, some of the people in the book were not even born at that time, right? They're just touching their 50s. Probably you're, you're, you're not 50 no, anymore. I, I'm not 50. So. not born. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So I really love what John did by bringing this book together. And uh, there's different perspectives in there. And we've been doing this podcast with people who have a background in healthcare, people who have a background in something in business, completely different things. And that's what makes it beautiful is that different perspectives have come together and um, created this book. I love what Toffler did and we all loved it. But how relevant is that 
in today's world. You know, we often talk about political instability and will, and I watched some of your TED Talks as well. You've, you've done an incredible amount of work in, in helping others understand what the world looks like. Uh, there's a lot of political um, uh, insights into that, you know, how different regions and countries are changing and what's happening to the world. What's happening today? I mean, we all are battling a single enemy, which of course is the coronavirus. We cannot ignore that conversation. And apparently the entire world is coming together to fight this. I mean, is this what we needed to come together somehow? Well, it's a great question. And, you know, it's something that I've just had a lengthy conversation about with right now with a, a traveler who made it into Singapore, where I am right now, just before sort of borders were closed. And uh, one of the things we were discussing is something that I've written about in my connectography book, sort of, you know, what are the linkages between people across geography that we can tangibly feel? Because we don't feel a human rights treaty but sometimes when a, you know, when there is, um, and this is the example I use, is the fire at the Rana Plaza, you know, garment factory in Bangladesh led to a rippling, uh, you know, through supply chains and consumer activism that led to changes in, you know, work labor practices, for example. So, you know, we are connected to the person in the, in Bangladesh at the garment factory, not through a human rights treaty, but through the supply chain, right? And the same thing goes obviously for the cobalt, you know, minerals in your mobile phone. You're connected to the man who does the you know, mining with his bare hands in Congo through the supply chain. So that that connectivity is fascinating. And what has happened with this coronavirus is that, uh, you know, presuming that all countries do genuinely ground their aircraft and quarantine all their people, can you think of any instance in human history where all governments and societies and people, all 8 billion people who are alive on the planet Earth today, um, you know, more or less simultaneously obeyed or coordinated a single action, right, to self-quarantine, to have a one week, let's, let's set the parameters a little broader. The world, every human being in the world has committed themselves to a one week vacation, right? It's not actually happened. Right, but it's close to sort of kind of having happened, right? Um, you know, if Trump would have obeyed a little bit, but you know, again, many American states are doing it even if Trump didn't, you know, get get to the, you know, sort of get the clue on time. UK obviously is a bit of an outlier, but to your question, you know, you are really, I think you're asking an incredibly relevant and timely question because I would ask back, has anything we ever come this close before, even if we don't quite fully succeed? as a totally universal coordinated action. And that is mind-blowing, absolutely yeah. mind-blowing. Um, absolutely. And if, if self-quarantining on that mass scale, that level of coordination is indeed the solution, and we come so incredibly close to doing it right, I will be positively blown away. Absolutely. And you know what? I, I constantly say this to people in, in, in my work is that, and this is a conversation about technology. I just want to add this, that maybe technology will make us better humans. Maybe it'll take away all these things from us that are keeping us so busy and distracted that somehow over the ages, we've lost trust with each other. We've become evil people. We've become uh, you know, greedy and all of these things. And maybe when technology automates everything, we'll be left with ourselves and we can be maybe better people. And that's what's happening right now. We don't have any distractions of the world. We don't have anything else we can focus on except staying alive, surviving. It's that basic 
primal thing that as humans we we must do and the beauty of it the, b beneath the quarantines and 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 people that are being affected is that somehow everybody has this one common need we all want to survive succeed and be part of the earth and the world and be healthy and and i think it's a great time for reflection it's a great time to to just take a step back in in the staycation uh, that you just said and think about hey what 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 are my priorities as a person, as an individual, as an expert, as a business leader, whatever role you perform, and what what do I stand for? And that's that's so profound if you really think about it. That um, it's very humbling uh, at at uh, at sometimes. Well, you know, one of the things that I think is is you're bringing this back to sort of futurism in some way, and 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 your usage of the word survival, I think, is very important. My my next book is about the future of human geography. I'm basically forecasting the, the distribution of the world's 9 billion people roughly in the year 2050. So if it's the year 2050 and 9 billion of us are alive at that point in time, where physically will we be? And how did, why are we where we will be? And how did we get there versus where the human population is now? And part of it is an answer. Part of it is an answer to this question about survival. What are we doing to survive? What will we do to survive, ensure our survival, given climate change, pandemics, uh, you know, civil conflict, political upheaval, economic dislocation, technological disruption, and these other factors that constantly force us to rethink where we are, why we're there, you know, are we in the right place? And if you think about, you know, coastal megacities that are being inundated with, you know, rising sea levels and, you know, so on, places that are affected by drought, we have this quest to survive obviously, right? We're, you know, every mammal, if I'm not mistaken, is more or less, uh, you know, sort of programmed to attempt to survive. And there's not enough literature on this because we just tend to presume that, you know, we'll suffer certain philosophers, you know, contemporary philosophers are quite pessimistic and morose, you know, about the whole uh, situation. But that's really not us. You know, we can get up and move. And so I'm kind of focusing on this intersection of mobility and survival and kind of, you know, geography and futurism in my, my next project. So I'm glad you're, you're thinking about this. So, you know, forcing it, again, reevaluating the basics, bringing it back to the virus. I think one yeah. thing is that, you know, the irony of the moment is that right now it appears that the world is at a total standstill, right? There has, you know, in a very long time, there has not been this little physical mobility using Transport, modern transportation, right, in decades. Absolutely. Absolutely. However, coming out of it, isn't it obvious that there will be a lot more? It is to me, because if you live in a red zone, you are going to want to move to a blue zone. You know, the minute those border closures are lifted, the minute those quarantines and, and the screening of people and the kind of, you know, good passport versus bad passport, people yeah. are going to reevaluate and say, you know what? I don't think I want to live in, uh, you know, Iran right now. They don't have a lot of these, you know, medical testing kits and so forth. And place, some places will be stigmatized, health systems exposed. Obviously, some places learn from their mistakes and they will yep. improve um, their their capabilities, you know, administratively, logistically, and so forth. Other places simply will not, and therefore people will leave those places urgently. So. Great thing that you mentioned that you have a new book coming out. And when is that? When is the book coming out? Is it next oh, year? Or not, not till uh, yeah, yeah, basically early next year. Okay, early next year. So we've got a, you know at least six months to a few months out. And I want to ask you a few different things relating 
to what potentially you're going to talk about there because I, I do have some, some ideas on some of the things that other people are talking about. So for example, there's a, there's, a, um, there's a group of people who are thinking that by the year 2045, human beings might be a neural race. We might be half machine, half human. We might have embedded technology in our bodies and people like Elon Musk are working on companies such as Neuralink. You put an electrode in your head and it reads your mind or, or does, does something else. Essentially wearables, um, implants and all of these devices might really, really rapidly take uh, you know, uh, more hold on our lives in the next 15, 20, 30 years. So that's one part of it. Do you believe that by the year 2050, we might be in a position where we're embedded with technology and we have all these things in our, you know, nanobots that are medicines and capsules and tablets we, 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 we ingest and they, they heal us and treat us? What's your stance? Well, you know, you've already mentioned a range of the sort of dimensions or aspects of this broader kind of man-machine synthesis, the neural dimension, the, the, the pharmacological sort of this dimension and so on. And each of those will, A, you know, happen at different speeds, um, you know, different rates in different geographies, obviously. So, you know, people are already talking about the genetic divide. Um, you know, we can already talk about that divide today let alone based on these sort of neural enhancements and you know um, man-machine synthesis kinds of things that you're that you're describing. So each of those may undoubtedly happen. You know, if it's something that already there's a startup working on today, you know, it's a safe bet, obviously, that it will have some traction somewhere at some point. Um, but it will obviously be very unevenly uh, spread. You know, so you know. I would say the broader question in terms of impact would be, you know, what things remain experimental and limited and isolated. So for example, space tourism. Well, if it really is just space tourism 25 years from now still, and it's only a hundred people who do it a year, we can talk about it, but it's not exactly a systemic factor, right? Yeah. Whereas if we're talking about, um, you know, if we're talking about a you know, broader, sort of society level integration of technology, then you would say, well, look, only places like Japan right now are genuinely countries where you have a broad you know, acceptance of and deployment of um, you know, certain kinds of advanced technologies where you can say that you know, there is almost this coexistence of you know, humans and robotics that are at a, at a large scale that mm -hmm. is unfolding. And it's you know, by design, it's conscious, there isn't a big backlash against it. It's a very high-tech, modern, sophisticated culture that's capable of you know, uh, you know, absorbing these evolutionary or these rapid changes. You can't actually make that statement that I just made about any other country on earth. So we can't really talk globally about these. Mm -hmm. Now we can talk globally about the impact of the mobile phone, right? We can say there is a precedent for a universalized, you know, electronic technology that is in the hands of almost every human being and look yeah. at how that has changed things. And you can say, well, now let's imagine all of the things that that platform will enable individuals to do, whether they're rich or poor. Now, that's a very worthwhile yeah. conversation. Obviously, entire books and studies are being done on this, you know, 24-7. I think that's super interesting, right? Yeah. Uh, it's every yeah. bit as interesting and relevant yeah. and, a, and a, again, a universal scale as, um, you know, looking at whether our food will come from pills, you know, or not.
Yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm also thinking about human migration in the future and something that you also just mentioned is you know the, the passport and you know where facilities are available now you know crispr as an example is a really groundbreaking technology that's i believe in very experimental stages you can modify you can do genetic engineering and so it's very possible that in the future that human uh, people who are born in the future are um, their their dna is modified so that they're uh, immune to anything like the coronavirus as an example just roughly uh, telling you a scenario. Now, depending on, uh, not, oh, oh, no, that's number one. Number two, embedded technology variables, not even variables, but technology that's embedded in us. That's number two. And number three is the evolution of smart cities. And I'm, there's a connection between all of these three. The evolution of smart cities, super connected cities. I believe there's going to be a shift in where people live based on what technology they have embedded and where they want to be ultimately because of what they can do within a city. For example, I might be embedded with some technology, but it's of no use in, uh, in, a, in a country where there's no smart infrastructure. And I might want to move to a country where I can do many different things with that embedded technology. I think you're, 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 you're nodding your head, so you know what I'm talking about. What is your uh, opinion on how the evolution of technology will lead to human migration? How is do you, th do you think that'll be uh, uh, a factor? Yeah, no question. I mean, you know, we can also link it back to the virus, right? So it, we're undergoing this mass experiment in remote work, you know, telecommuting. The capacity for telecommuting has been quite high for several years based on the broadband you know, capacity in major cities, but we haven't used it because of corporate culture, which demands a certain degree of FaceTime. But now mm -hmm. we're forced to, you know, actually put that technology to work. And so people, those at the, at the top end right now, you know, those who are in any case, mobile, remote, um, highly skilled uh, you know, programmers and coders, they already were working wherever they wanted to. And now that their companies and employers are really gonna get used to it, they may say, you know what, now I can really move to Bali, you know, and uh, you know, live cheaper and be on the beach and you know, still get my work done and so on. So we've already seen a bit of that. We might see a lot more of it. Uh, in the future as we shift that culture. So will places that have a combination of say security, meaning biosecurity, agro security, uh, physical security, while also being very connected so that you can do your work anywhere, are those places going to be favored by the talented, you know, sort of uh, people who can work remotely or from anywhere? A absolutely. And more again, that is a trend that is already underway now, right? I live yeah. in Southeast Asia and Singapore. Now, Singapore is uh, a bit, you know, not, not a cost-effective city for a startup entrepreneur, but what one has seen evolve in this region over the last 10, 15 years is that like Bali and Phuket and all these places that are much cheaper to live in now have, you know, ubiquitous, you know, fast Wi-Fi and they're building international schools and they're trying to basically attract colonies of skilled workers to go live there and do their remote work. So will there be migration related to um, the positive effects of technology? Sure, but let's not forget, not forget what we've also experienced in the last 10 years, which is that labor automation has displaced and made unemployed and redundant millions of people who can also no longer afford to live where they have been and therefore move for the exact opposite reason. So within the United States, you've had this re-sorting, right? You know, people cannot afford to live 
in even Rust Belt towns, and they're moving other parts of the country, right? So there's positive and negative, you know, in technolo technological impacts on uh, human migration, and a whole lot more. Just one other, two other things. One is, um, you know, passports. You know, should we have a blockchain-based identification system that identifies you as you rather than, you know, by your nationality? And, you know, it gives access, at least in a temporal way, to authorities so that they know about your criminal record and your recent travel history so yes. that you are allowed entry into a country based on your professional or personal you know, merit rather than being denied that because you have a passport from a Latin American or African country. Yeah, we can get there, you know, more or less tomorrow, right? The question is simply... Um, you know, whether we have the willpower among the various government uh, agencies to do it. You know, yeah. a country like Estonia more or less has everyone's necessary IDs and security on a, you know, SIM card that each citizen gets. The problem is that while Estonians have it, if no other country has it, well, then they, it takes two to tango when you're crossing a border, right? So they're yes. so far ahead that they can't travel to any other country with the advanced technology they have it to stick with the boring, dumb old passport. Now take Google Glass, right? So, you know, one of the reasons, there were maybe two or several reasons why it didn't really catch on. One was that people thought, oh my goodness, you know, people are, this is a bit too intrusive. The other reason, obviously, was that the built environment didn't yet feature enough applications, uh, you know, in projecting data that, uh, in the IoT sense, that the glass will actually be useful for. So it was a product that was a bit ahead of its time. But now imagine, as you're saying, you know, I have wearables, I have sensors, things I want, you know, I want to live in a place where I can actually use these technologies, you know, so I want a fully AR outfitted, you know, kitted out kind of city, and I want to go live there. I can totally imagine young people, you know, some people being gravitating towards those places. You can also imagine people running away from them uh, yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Both, both are going to happen, right? Uh, you know, some will, will thrive, others will fail. So I expect lots of these things to happen in the various mm -hmm. smart city uh, projects that, uh, you know, sort of present and future. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I, I, I foresee a little bit impact of, uh, you know, if, if you ask me, I would say that uh, between choosing food and technology, there might be future citizens of the world who will choose cities that have a better, better technology infrastructure than a better, um, you know, there might be just vertical farms or other forms of foods rather than fresh freshly produced uh, foods there might be that 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 impact as well given how addicted we are to technology and how much we are just glued to it I, I we are almost out of time I am going to take one more minute and get your opinion on how the current oil wars and there's an oil war happening right now between Saudi Arabia United States Russia there's a huge oil play happening as of today uh, where oil prices have tanked what impact do you think energy prices are going to have on global migration and slash the evolution of um, autonomous cars, battery run cars, electric cars? What do you see happening uh, in the next 20 to 30 years? Yeah, well, I mean, today's oil war is very different from the you know, OPEC uh, oil shocks of the 1970s. In many ways, we've come full circle, actually, because those oil wars and oil shocks were, by the way, something that uh, was a major point of departure for some of the uh, writing that, that, uh, that, that Alvin Toffler did, we should mention, because uh, for, for him, in, in the writings that he did in the mid-late 1970s, 
it really represented you know kind of globalization of petro geopolitics and the you know impact of, of commodities and markets and so forth and the the the, the big um, impact uh, that the oil shocks had um, you know was was obviously a major factor in the 1970s but that was the time at which Arab you know petro monarchies were able to assert themselves here again we see the exact opposite this this oil war is intrinsic to or internal to the oil producing developing markets um, and they have much less impact on let's say the US and Canada and so forth so you know they're hurting themselves this time with low oil prices rather than spiking prices uh, for the world and as much as they may have a microeconomic impact on the shale industry in the United States the fact is that you can only you know, broadly do damage to the U.S. economy if, A, you're raising prices substantially rather than pinning them down. And, of course, if those countries are dependent on Middle Eastern oil, which, of course, the exact opposite is true now in North America with the shale uh, revolution. So I think that today's oil wars are relatively uh, marginal. Again, literally at the margins having an impact on specific companies in the shale industry. But we all know and it's hard for anyone other than a you know, paid up lobbyist hand of the, of the energy industry, of the fossil fuel industry to deny that the cost of solar is in secular uh, decline. And that's going to obviously lead to a certain uh, self-propelling uh, momentum. Yeah. You know? And I think that applies, of course, in other categories of alternative and renewable uh, energy as well. And then you know, battery technology is something that, again, in, in, in material science and in the broader uh, corporate environment and the funding ecosystem takes on a life of its own. It's not something that is really going to um, ebb and you know wax and wane based on the oil price at this point. So you know, as I've been saying for some time, take you know you've got a bookshelf behind you. Uh, for some people, that bookshelf you know five ten years ago had several titles on it, such as peak oil, end of oil, war for oil. And what I say these days is, you know, take all those books that were bestsellers 10 years ago with those titles and you can commit those to the recycling bin, right? There's really no need for oil wars. Absolutely. Absolutely. Parag, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. You're such an inspiration. Keep up the good work. Thank you for being part of this Likewise. podcast. Thank you for being part of Aftershock. And Aftershock is available on Amazon, I believe, and uh, really good read for anybody who wants to learn uh, about what World's Top 50 Futurists are talking about. Prague, where can people look you up, follow you, contact you if they need to? All the usual places, uh, paragkana.com, you know, LinkedIn, Twitter, um, and all that. The, no, no futuristic platform that I'm yet on that, that you're not. Okay, perfect. Parag, thank you so much. Take care and save times, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll catch you around. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast. Hey friend, this is Ian Khan. If you liked what you saw on my video, then please subscribe to my YouTube channel and be inspired every single day with innovative content that keeps you fresh, updated, and ready for the future. For more information, also visit my website at iankhan.com.